The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Let's look at this scripture reading today. It's from Mark 15, 1-15. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Howard. I was great passage of scripture that you read for us this morning. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Christ's Prayers. Uh, if I haven't met you, uh, my name is Paul Lim, and I've been serving here uh, since 2016 as a scholar in residence. And people often ask me, what does that mean? I, I, I usually say, do you, do you like the NFL? I said, of course I like the NFL. I said, well, that's, for me at least, is nerd for the Lord. That's what I do. I'm a nerd for the Lord that uh, whether here at Christ Press or at Vanderbilt University, I uh, teach and learn together with students and uh, that is a great privilege and a pleasure. So here we have um, the last sermon in the series on the Gospel of Mark. Um, and we began this series, believe it or not, in the beginning of this year in January, on the 3rd of January, I had a privilege and pleasure of kicking it off and I have the same sentiments as we wrap it up today. So if you're able and willing, let's pray uh, once again as we look to the Lord for his word to illuminate our hearts. Gracious God and glorious Lord, we thank you for these words that are read for us. We thank you for the songs that are sung and the prayers and praises that are indeed redounding to your awesome glory. Lord, as we seek you now in your word that has been read and will be proclaimed and listened to and engaged with, May you do your heart work in our hearts, and may you do the life work in our lives, and may your word not return void and empty, but accomplish the great and gracious purposes for which they are sent. Pray these things in your name. Amen. So, um, Yaroslav Pelikan was a historian who taught for many years at the University of Chicago and at Yale, 
And he was in particular a historian of Christianity. And in 1985, which is years and years ago, he wrote this book called Jesus Through the Centuries. And that book has endured for his perspective on how each century and era, each culture and ecclesial bodies, remodeled in some ways the face and significance of Jesus by situating Jesus in their own context. Professor Pelican basically asserts, as he specifies in the subtitle of the book, his place in the history of culture, that each culture has tended to create Jesus in their own image in some ways, that at least uh, ended up portraying Jesus in some ways to reflect their own cultural norms and values in as much as having Jesus influence, shape, and transform their norms, values, and religious commitments and convictions. So we want to ask ourselves this morning as you're finishing this series on the Gospel of Mark, in what ways have we Americanized Jesus, even without knowing, even without intending to? And I think it is an important question to ask as we are uh, sitting here in 2021, here in Nashville, Tennessee, United States of America, recognizing that our culture shapes the way that we think about self, savior, salvation, and society. How does it differ from the original portrait? While we certainly acknowledge that it is highly desirable to get to the original, is it actually possible? These are important questions to ask. For example, you know that there is a difference of millions and millions of dollars between the Mona Lisa in the Louvre Museum in Paris and other kind of knockoff copies, however nicely that they're done. So if you see one hanging in a home in Brentwood, California or Brentwood, Tennessee, you know that ain't real, right? It is an imitation at best. So I think as we start this uh, sermon here, uh, we need to acknowledge our own cultural situatedness and therefore ask the giver and perfecter of our cultures to, see, to enable us to see Jesus more clearly magnified in the way that we gather together today. By the way, can I tell you how excited I am to be able to see people in front of me as I preach you know, um, and share the word of God? I haven't been to my office since February 2020. I think my office still stands, as I've heard, but you know, it's been a while. I've been teaching remotely, so on Zoom, I see you know, 28 or so faces on the, on, on the computer screen. And while that's certainly uh, helpful and engaging, but there's a limitation. So to be able to see people here sitting in front of me and shaking hands, I guess I've just begun shaking people's hands. I've been vaccinated, so I, I usually ask people, do you want to fist bump or shake hands? And almost everyone said, I want to shake hands. And so I said, okay, let's do it. And, and so I think we are people who desire community. We de desire communion. And that is by divine design. God has wired us in that way. God's desire is that we seek communion above all things. Uh, with God of the Lord, God of creation, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So today's sermon is entitled, uh, Jesus, Our Convict. And I want to repeat this as I have in the past. Did you know that every time I get up here to speak, I don't choose the text, I don't choose the title. It's like you go into an exam and they give you an essay question is right on this particular topic. So uh, the text of today was given to me and the title of the sermon was given to me as well. And this one, these three words, Jesus, our convict, really, really hit home for me because I'm convinced more than anything else, we really get to understand these three words, Jesus, our convict. Therein is a powerful and beautiful encapsulation of the entire gospel story. Jesus becomes convicted in my place, in your place, for our sake, 
in order to liberate us, in order to give us our true identity and true mission. And therein lies the gospel. But so often we don't think of Jesus as our convict. Well, let me ask you, students in middle school and high school in particular, when you think of the word convict, who comes to your mind? Right? Think of that word, convict. Is that a likely person that you're going to be singing about and worshiping? What do you think? Not likely. Thank you for shaking your Yeah, you're right. I mean, like, when you hear the word convict, that person is not likely the kind of person that you will say, yeah, I want to sing about that person. I want to exalt that person above all else. And here's a beautiful irony of the gospel then, because I'm submitting to you this morning that we, if we get this significance of these three words, Jesus, our convict, then and only then do we really understand the beauty of the gospel, the profundity of God's grace. Because of all things God, that God could have done and God have God could have chosen in terms of pathways of God's involvement in our world. God chose it so that his only son becomes a convict, spends time, albeit one night, in prison, that he chooses the pathway of execution as a publicly indicted criminal. And also, let us not forget, he was wrongfully convicted. So there are many layers of permutations of that statement that I just made. We won't get to all of them, but let's go uh, to some right here. So um, in my uh, 15 years of being at Vanderbilt University, of the 12 or so, I have had the pl uh, real privilege and pleasure of teaching and learning together with my friends at Riverbend Maximum Security Prison. I teach a class there uh, most uh, regularly, a course called God and Human Suffering, a History of Theodicy in Christian Traditions. And as I was preparing this sermon, uh, this, especially because of the title, Jesus Our Convict, I was thinking about my brothers at Riverbend. Because of COVID, uh, we were right in the middle of it and we could not continue teaching last year. I was teaching at Riverbend and then because of COVID happened, it was a shutdown situation. So I could not see them, I could not write to them. And so, but as I was preparing this sermon for the last couple of weeks, I was really thinking about that, especially because for my brothers at Riverbend, I reminded them that Jesus is doing time for all of us, and Jesus is doing time with all of us. And for my brothers, they get that instinctively and intuitively because they are behind, they are behind bars. And for them, because of their situation, to hear that Jesus is our convict really, really hits home for them in the same similar way that I hope is hitting home for you throughout the sermon and beyond. You see, we need to recognize a few things about Jesus' conviction, how he became our convict. One and most fundamental thing is he was wrongfully convicted, wrongfully convicted. And we'll also we'll see Jesus here in this story. We'll also encounter Pilate, the politician, the crowd pleaser. We'll also meet Barabbas, the insurrectionist, We'll also be shocked and saddened by the silence of the disciples of the wrongly convicted Messiah. I was telling a friend of mine of the fact that I'm going to be preaching on this text, and he, he said, yeah, you got a politician, you got an insurrectionist, and you got this whole thing going on in, 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 in April 2021. Good luck as you preach this text. I said, I need more than luck. I need the Holy Spirit to show up in a big way. So for the rest of our time, I want to, I want to offer three portraits of Jesus from the perspective of these three distinct peoples or groups of people, first, as I mentioned, we'll see how Jesus, our convict, is understood by Pontius Pilate. 
The second person will be Barabbas, the insurrectionist. And thirdly, we'll see it from the standpoint of the disciples who are there. These three points will serve as a sort of an allegory or as an example for the three groups of people uh, today. Pontius Pilate will serve as an allegory for the secular world. Barabbas will serve as an allegory for those whom Christianity is civil religion, about which I'll say a few more in a few moments. And finally, the disciples will serve as an allegory for us as we fumble and bumble along in following Jesus. Then we'll wrap things up by looking at the scene from God's perspective. Why and how would God allow this to happen? And what does it tell us about God's identity and God's desires? And what did it accomplish and what does it signify for us today here in Nashville 2021? And I want to tell you from my own experience of interacting with this passage and encountering the Lord of this text, I can identify and resonate most deeply uh, with all three, Pontius Pilate, Barabbas, and disciples. But that doesn't come naturally for me. In any reading of the story, I, and perhaps you too, tend to identify with the good people, right? And, and so we have this invisible tendency in what contemporary sociologists would call hidden bias, not to identify with and in fact demonize people like Pontius Pilate and Barabbas. But our failure to see how they put up for us a powerfully reflective mirror is to miss the entire point of the story of Jesus, our convict. Let's then move to the first point, shall we? Pontius Pilate and Jesus, our convict, or how Pilate serves as an allegory for the secular world. So Pontius Pilate is a fall guy in the gospel story of Jesus, right? He shows up and he's often kind of dismissed as a guy who just, well, could have had it, I could have you know, released Jesus, but did not do it. Well, we, we need to do a bit of a, a nosedive into the story, at least presented to us here in Mark 15, and see what really happened. So I wanna share about four points about uh, Pontius Pilate. First point is that from all the four gospels, it becomes unequivocally clear that Pilate thought Jesus was innocent, right? So I want you to remember that. Pilate really did think that Jesus was innocent. And then why does he do what he, what he does? Let me, uh, let me not get ahead of myself yet. So in verse five of our text that we read, it says that Pilate was amazed at the silence of Jesus. Jesus, our lamb, Jesus, our convict, right? He was amazed at the silence of this guy who could have said many things in his defense but doesn't say anything, and he's actually amazed. Wow, this is a pretty extraordinary situation, pretty extraordinary individual. In verse 10 of today's text that Howard read for us, Mark also says that Pilate knew of the ulterior motives of the accusers from the religious leaders. In fact, this does not exonerate him. Rather, it indicts Pilate, knowing that this man was wrongfully accused, he caves under political pressure and under popular demand. But nonetheless, he knew that the, the accusation was kind of wrongly motivated, and in his own encounter with Jesus, he's amazed at the fact that this person must be not only extraordinary, but therefore likely to be innocent. Number three in verse 14, Pilate asks, perhaps in desperation, desperate to salvage a little bit of conscience he had left perhaps, or desperate to think seriously about the dire warning his wife gave him that morning. Did you know that in Matthew chapter 27, verse 19, 
this unknown, unnamed wife of uh, Pontius Pilate sends a messenger saying to her husband, don't have anything to do with this innocent man because I've suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. So not only from his own encounter, not only from deciphering the kind of ulterior motives of the accusers of Jesus, but he's further abetted by his wife's testimony from her dream saying they don't have anything to do with that guy because he's an innocent man. So you got a trifecta of testimonies that would actually move Pilate's heart closer to exonerating and releasing Jesus. And he certainly has that kind of a dilemma right now. And then number four, he asked all the right questions to Jesus. Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, yes, as you have said. In other words, he had all the right theological information about Jesus. Did he believe them to be true? Perhaps he did so at a notional level but it did not lead to a level of transformation of his own heart. Let's see one more fact in verse 15. Mark records that Pilate released Barabbas to the religious leaders and the crowd of people in order to satisfy the crowd. I mentioned that already. When Pilate's high view of Jesus or almost right opinions concerning his identity came in direct conflict or collision with Pilate's own self-interest or political aspirations, Pilate quickly changes his mind. By the way, as some of you may know, the, the, the Greek word for repentance is called metanoia. Meta means change, noia means mind. So literally it means to repent means change your mind. See, Pilate changes mind. Pilate does have a repentance, all right, but in the wrong direction. He previously thought that Jesus was innocent and he was about to, he was really having this dilemma and what do I do, what do I do? But then because they are saying, if you release Jesus, you are no friend of Caesar. And at that moment, he says, in order to satisfy the crowd, he lets Jesus go. To save his butt, to salvage his career, Jesus could never get in the way of his life and career, could he? So then, how was Pilate the allegory for the secular world. I've been teaching Evangelical for 15 years and I don't have the idea of like us versus them kind of mentality. I don't have the mentality of church is a holy huddle and the rest of the world is a terrible place and terrifying kind of. No, I think there are good people there, good, good people here. Our uh, vision of this world is, goes beyond this world. You know the Latin term secular literally means of this world. To be secular means your life is basically one merry-go-round. We go around one time, and once that merry-go-round is done, it's done. So for my friends and colleagues in the secular world, uh, many of them think very highly of Jesus. For quite a while, a good number of secular scholars had quite a view, high view of Jesus, his morals, his teachings, his life example, or his God consciousness. But these days, these days, Due to the pressure imposed on Christianity being the single most re responsible and reprehensible institution and religion in human history, most do not wish to identify Jesus as a positive agent in political, religious, and cultural cha uh, changes. And I don't mean that from a right-wing or left-wing standpoint. You don't have to be a Republican to make that point or a Democrat to make that point as someone who's living one's life as a failing but trying to be a faithful follower of Jesus in the academy. I see that going on. They perhaps have right thoughts and opinions about Jesus in private, but that does not lead them to make right in public the person of Jesus, our convict, the wrongfully convicted man. 
So Pontius Pilate, in the same way, he caved in under uh, public pressure and popular demand, kind of caused him to say, yes, Jesus needs to be executed. I see that Pontius Pilate serves as an allegory for many in the secular world who might otherwise think that Jesus is a pretty decent guy, very, very great teacher, wonderful morals he taught, but because of the pressures that are exerted upon many in the, in the public arena or secular world, I think that serves an allegory of just kind of caving under that particular pressure. Um, maybe some of you can resonate with what I'm saying here right now. That then takes me to the second point, Barabbas the insurrectionist and Jesus our convict, or how Barabbas serves an allegory for the civil religionists among us. Notice with me in verse 7. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. From that one sentence, we can tell that Barabbas is not that great a guy. I mean, that's, but from one vantage point, from Barabbas' standpoint, yes, we're actually trying to do the right thing for the kingdom of Yahweh, for the kingdom of God. We just happen to use Roman ways to accomplish God's design. Annual custom, as you have read in the text uh, for the governor, was in this time of likely Passover to release and exonerate one man, one person, that the people requested. Here is a thing we often miss. If we only see Barabbas, the insurrectionist, as a bad dude who got off scot-free, then we're missing the picture. There's much more to Barabbas than just that. And my job here is to tell you what that might be. And to do so, I think, you know, I'm relying on uh, Professor N.T. Wright, who is perhaps one of the best-known biblical scholars of our generation today. And this is what he wrote. He said, the story of Bar uh, Barabbas invites us to see Jesus' crucifixion in terms of a stark personal exchange. Barabbas deserves to die. Jesus deserves to live. Barabbas walks out. Jesus dies instead. Barabbas goes free. Barabbas was the archetypal uh, Jewish rebel, quite probably what we have today would call a fanatical right-wing zealot, determined to stop at nothing to bring in a version of God's kingdom, which consisted of defeating Roman power by Roman means. In other words, repaying pagan violence with holy violence. No doubt many Christians in Mark's community and others who would read his book had at one stage at least flirted with such revolutionary movements, end quote. In other words, what Wright is saying is that Barabbas and his kind of insurrectionists were seeking to build a kingdom of God by Roman means, by Roman methods. Beloved, let me make this one thing very, very clear. Barabbas was the first one who knew that Jesus died instead of him. Did you hear that? Of all the people we encounter in the New Testament, Barabbas was literally the guy because Jesus took his place. Barabbas walked out free, and the one who walked out free because of Jesus is Barabbas. So he is the first one. Barabbas knew that his own liberation came at the cost of Jesus' own execution. Barabbas' liberation meant Jesus' own condemnation. So how is Barabbas the insurrectionist in an allegory for the civil religionists among us? Or you might say, Paul, who or what is a civil religionist anyway? Well, I can explain a couple of ways. That person is one who knows the historical details and even some of the details about Christ and, and has personal significance to that person, right? 
Barabbas, whatever might have happened to him subsequently, would always have given the right answer that Jesus took his place at the execution block called the crucifix. Let me give a couple of examples here about civil religion. So I've lived, we moved, my wife and I and our son moved here in 2006 from Boston. And so I've been here living, uh, living in the South for the last 15 years. And there are, you know, several expressions that I picked up as my own now that I kind of use. And one that I really like that explains the thing about civil religion is the thing, are you ready for this? When people say, bless her heart, bless his heart, you know, and then somebody told me, I said, what does that mean? Because I hear that a lot. And, and they said, well, you know, when you say bless, bless his heart, bless her heart, that means whatever you say after that is okay. And then whatever usually follows not great things about that person. Bless his heart, but, you know, you know, blah, blah, blah. Or bless her heart, but she's terrible, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, okay. All right, so bless his heart. Because I never heard that expression until I moved to Na Nashville. So when you say bless his heart, bless her heart, that gives you a, a jail, get out of jail free card to saying whatever you want to say about that other person. It seems to me that, that there is a kind of a civil religion that is much more deeply in, established in the South than in the North. In Boston, you've, you know, it's a very rare thing to find people who ask you, where do you go to church? I had realtors ask me, where do you go to church? I said, what? You know, and so it is kind of like that here. There's a civil religion that is pretty well established because of longstanding connection with life in the South and Christianity. And we need to be aware of that. We need to be aware of it in the similar way that when I was a grad student in England, this is something that happened, right? So I had a, an English friend and I asked him, as I was getting to know him better, I asked him, hey, are you a Christian? And he said, of course, because I'm English. I said, what do you mean? I asked you not about your nationality, but whether you, you're a Christian. He said, yes, I'm a Christian because I'm English. And he said, let me explain. I'm English, and that meant that when I was born, I was baptized into the Church of England. Therefore, when you ask me if I'm a Christian, that means, yes, I am because I'm English. I mean, maybe not so much in Australia, but England, I think for this person, that there's almost a one-to-one -one correspondence between national identity and religious identity. And I think that's civil religion. So in some ways, civil religion kind of does that. It, it has the kind of foundation. It's Christ without letting that, you know, it is uh, basically... Uh, celebrating the life and death and the whole shebang of Christianity without letting that truth affect the rest of society too much. Christianity is foundation of human society and aren't we glad that it's Christianity and that other religions that founded the core values of our institutions, but don't let that person of Jesus affect you too much. Be mindful and even be thankful to Jesus, but don't go joining that ragtag bunch of Galileans who speak with a funny accent and follow a guy who was crucified in my place. Barabbas might have been mildly or at least temporarily grateful or thankful and regarded himself blessed by Yahweh, but we don't know the rest of his life. Quite unlikely this incredible last-minute exchange from death to life had any lasting impact on him. Barabbas is a beneficiary perhaps without gratitude, recipient of a new life quite literally without arousing any further curiosity about the one who was convicted for his sake. We see that in Barabbas, and let me tell you something, friends. I see myself in Barabbas. In fact, I see myself as Barabbas. And I would like to submit to all of us that so should all of us. To the extent that we refuse or fail to identify with or as Barabbas, we fail to grasp the profundity of Christ's substitutionary death as Jesus, our convict. That leads me to the final point. 
the disciples and Jesus are convict, or how the disciples serve as an allegory for all of us. We know, you know, we spoke of the, the, the powerfully deafening silence of Jesus. As he was being tried, he didn't say a lot of words. He basically said when Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? He basically said, you said it. And then the rest of the time, he remained silent. You know who else was silent, invisible, and absent? The disciples. The disciples who had plenty to say when they're trying to figure out who's going to sit at the right hand, the left hand of Jesus. The disciples who had plenty to say about, you know, whether Jesus should send down thunder on a Samaritan village and judge them most harshly. But when he was, when Jesus himself became our convict, it seems to me that from all four Gospels, the disciples were eerily silent. Did you notice something else here? Understandably, and, and nobody speaks out in defense of Jesus. Well, that's technically not true, you might say, because Pilate sort of did. Yeah, I think he did. He actually, Pilate of all people, sort of spoke out in defense of Jesus. What did he do wrong? But where were the disciples when the Jesus, the convict, needed an advocate? When Jesus needed an ally? When Jesus needed someone who would say, no, that man is innocent, crucify me instead. I'm not so historically ignorant to suggest that any of the disciples would have either the clout or connections to be right by the exalted seat of Pilate. However, the disciples could have been where the crowds had been, but they were, as far as we can tell from all the Gospels, nowhere to be seen. They were distraught, understandably. They're distracted by all that commotion surrounding the arrest and the trumped-up charges of Jesus. And they felt defeated because this wonderful charismatic leader is now being led away to the slaughterhouse with the silence of the lamb. And they felt dejected. And yet they were willing to let a wrongfully convicted man go and be executed. Some of you may be familiar with this book uh, by uh, Brian Stevenson called Just Mercy. Brian Stevenson is a Harvard Law-educated uh, attorney who about three decades ago started this uh, uh, thing called Equal, Just, Equal Justice In uh, Initiative. And along with another kind of uh, a nonprofit called uh, the Innocence Project, they've been really kind of tirelessly at work trying to exonerate people who are wrongfully convicted and accused. And Brian Stevenson was interviewed by the New York Times about the kind of work he does. And it's a book, um, it's a story of justice and redemption, it says. And to be kind of working toward the ultimate redemption of all of God's creation means working on behalf of those who are wrongfully convicted, who are too powerless to say anything on their behalf. And I think about that. I think about the silence of the disciples and silence of our own silence when it comes to things like that. Now, I have a, a pretty deep personal connection to those who are wrongfully convicted because my father was one such individual. So I was about nine years old, and uh, my father was first incarcerated under some trumped-up charges uh, under the military dictatorship of Park Chung-hee in South Korea. And he was in and out of prison for the next three years. I knew in my heart of heart that my father was wrongfully convicted. And indeed, at the end, he was uh, kind of declared to be uh, innocent of all the charges. But that came at the price, uh, at the cost of his torture 
and just emotional and physical and the kind of wrecking of family connections and family kind of fabric that he had with his wife, my mother, and my sister, me, and my younger brother. Wrongful conviction doesn't have to mean that somebody is so far away, that behind bars. No, for me, when I think about my dad, that's perhaps why I uh, so uh, enjoy would be the wrong word, but I, why I really did not hesitate from going into prison uh, compounds to teach and learn. Because each time I would go to this Riverbend Maximum Security Prison, I felt as if I was visiting my own father, someone who I haven't seen for the last three years because of COVID and so on. But you see, friends, I think God desires to lift us up from our own silence and complicity. And God says, you know what, I want you to be actually be cognizant of your silence, be cognizant of your kind of uh, self-selected invisibility like the disciples, but my work with you is not over yet. See, the gospel truth is exactly that. The gospel convicts and indicts, but also liberates and sets us up into a journey as followers of Christ. And that takes me to my final home stretch. Um, that is, um, why and God, why and how would God allow this to happen? And what did it accomplish? And what does it signify for us today? So let me try to put it this way. God knows everything, right? Would you believe that? Do you believe it? Would there be an amen in the room? God knows everything. God could have done anything God wanted. So God's particular chosen pathway for the salvation of the world was for the Son of God to come into this world, right? And born in a very kind of affluent neighborhood, right? No. Couldn't even find the regular motel room. So he had to be born, and all of all, and he was not well educated. He was not born in a powerful family. He was part of the loser nations of the world. He was part of, I mean, so where Jesus was born, they, that country did not even have their own independence. It was not even a developing nation, or as we uh, say nowadays, somewhat disparaging, a third world country. Jesus came from a loser country, loser family, loser neighborhood. I mean, why, right? I mean, it really did. And you think I'm insulting Jesus. I'm just telling you honestly as a historian. That's Jesus' background. We have exalted Jesus so much because he's the son of God, but his earthly background is quite low, right? And furthermore, and furthermore, Jesus, when he died, he died as an executed, wrongfully convicted criminal. And there was a fourth century theologian and a bishop and a pastor named um, Athanasius of Alexandria from Egypt. And this is what he wrote in the book that I think is really fantastic uh, on the incarnation. Now, for you to believe that something is fantastic, I have to tell you that C.S. Lewis wrote the foreword to that, right? So C.S. Lewis said it, then it must be right, right? So C.S. Lewis wrote an introduction to this fantastic fourth century essay called On the Incarnation. And he answers this question. Are you ready for this? This is a great question. Athanasius asked this question. Of all kinds of death that Jesus could have died, why did he have to be crucified? And this is what he says. He says, why couldn't Jesus, and he's answering these rhetorical questions. He's, he, someone asks, why couldn't Jesus die of natural death? Right? Let's say Jesus reaches about 70 years. I mean, that makes sense, right? Jesus only ministered for three years. What if he did for 30 years, 40 years? Let's say Jesus dies of natural death at age 70 or 80. Athanasius said, no, 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 that doesn't actually then signify what really needed to be signified, and he's kind of suspending the answer. And then he asks another question. Couldn't Jesus have died in a, in a, in a, in a you know, traffic accident in the streets of Jerusalem? If death was what God was really after, why not natural death? Why not accidental death? 
And then he says, the death that God has specifically chosen for the Son of God was to signify for us, to show us the gravity of our sin and our rebellion and our self-sufficiency, and also to equally show the equal kabod or the weightiness of the glory of God's mercy and justice. Jesus could not die in a donkey hit accident. Jesus could not die at age 83 of natural death. Jesus had to die this death of an executed criminal in order to show simultaneously the weight of our own weighted, of our own sinfulness and our rebellion, as well as the weightiness of God's glorious grace in embracing us, even though we are rebels and sinners. Friends, you are Barabbas. Don't be insulted. I am Barabbas. We walk away scot-free. We don't even recognize it. I think to the extent that we don't recognize that we are Barabbases, that means we don't really take, the, take seriously the weightiness of the transaction that, the, that took place. In many ways, we feel as if Jesus died a natural death. No, Jesus became a curse for you and me so that the curse would be transferred from us to Jesus. That's why Jesus had to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus' death was indeed you know, excruciatingly painful, both physically but also, more importantly, psychologically, bearing down the weight of the, the curse of God. The wrath of God upon Jesus was something that Jesus could only express in the biblical language of saying, my God, my God, I feel utterly and absolutely forsaken by you. The temporary rupture in that eternal felicity and relationship between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Why? It is for you and for me. In the words of one of my favorite theologians, Michael Card, you know, it's, uh, uh, it says in one of the songs, it says, when that moment when father turned his face away, father turned the face away so that he could endure that full expression of the wrath of God and the sin of, sin of all of us, all of the cosmos, so that Jesus could be the wrongfully convicted one in order to rightfully liberate us so that we may enjoy the fellowship as we are about to receive the Lord's Supper for God's glory and unto our great joy. Let's pray together. Gracious God and glorious Lord, we thank you for these words that are read for us. Thank you for the fact that Jesus became our convict. Lord, we often do not associate Jesus with our convict. We often associate convicts with people who have done horrifying things and terrible things, but Lord, you became convicted for us. Just as you became convicted for Barabbas, help us to see ourselves as Barabbas in many ways. And in so doing, help us to experience the liberating power of the gospel truth, that you are indeed what you are, indicted and convicted, but you are indeed what you are, liberated and owned and adopted and secured for eternity. Thank you, and we love you, for you have loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen.